Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are continuing through the book of Revelation. We've been hanging out in the seven messages. We took one pass through to talk about uh, just look at a first gleaning pass of the letters we're going through now again, and we are uh, finishing up the last two. So we did the first five. We're going to hang out in uh, Philadelphia. You spent time out in Pennsylvania, didn't you, for your doctorate? Okay. I did. Different, d- different, different Philadelphia. Different Philadelphia, yeah. Yeah, but you weren't born and raised. And it's not the city of brotherly love. If they think they are, they're clearly it's... mistaken. <laughs> It's true. Uh, literally, that's yeah, what the word they means. They throw snowballs at Santa, at Santa Claus in football. And they booed I mean, Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, but they had a but, prison but, but, at the football stadium. So yes, tells yes. You it's, yeah. In the Holy Spirit. Hey, guess what, though? You know what? I was a Raider season take a hold for 10 years. We never booed Santa, never threw stuff, and we did not have a prison at the Oakland Coliseum. So, hey, FYI, we're not as bad as Eagles fans. I totally could comment right now, and I just won't. <laughs> I have so many things running through my head. So many things. Okay. I'm not going to use them. (laughs) Okay. So uh, as we get into uh, Philadelphia, which is going to be in chapter three, starting at verse seven. All right, let's read this. Uh, Chapter three, seven through 11 to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commandment to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. Amen. All right. So as we've mentioned, then this is the one of the two churches that have only positives. The church in Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia. And in both churches, they were facing opposition from their Jewish neighbors. And we've talked about that at some length there. Uh, it appears that those in Philadelphia, the opposition, which apparently is like is the local synagogue, has shut the door and kicked them out of the local communal gatherings. And now, again, you have to understand what that means in a social context. When these are Jewish Christians and this is a Jewish community, these are neighbors, friends, relatives, and others that you commune together with, you eat together with, you fellowship together with, you do social events together with, and now they kick you out of the synagogues. So that's, that's, that's something serious. That's something huge there. And notice that Jesus is introduced to them in chapter three, verse seven with the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one shuts and who shuts and no one opens. So they may have shut the door to the synagogue, but be encouraged. I got the key of David. I open and no one shuts. Well, and they were, they were kicked out of the synagogue. And so they're encouraged with the words I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So there's that contrast there. Yeah, exactly. That's that's kind of the whole point there, right? And also note, of course, as well, the promise to them in chapter three, verse 12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God, hmm. and he will not go out from it anymore. So not only are you going to be entering into the kingdom of God, you're going to be a pillar in that temple kingdom. So what's interesting also is the, the phrase behold, uh, occurs three times in this particular letter, chapter three, verse eight, it occurs twice and chapter three, verse nine. And it says, it says, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door. And what's interesting is in the other letters, it says, I know your deeds. 
And then always followed by, you'll know what I'm referring to, um, Vinny, but a hati clause, which means that mm -hmm. or because or says, I, I know your deeds, that. You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Right? I know your deeds, that. But in this letter, it says, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door. And so mm -hmm. your deeds are probably the deeds that have gotten the synagogue door closed. And before he gives this, in, this encouragement of the that, I know your deeds, that, it's, I put before you an open door. It's this great word of exhortation, of, exhortation, of encouragement. And it's probably this, this parenthetical insertion there. So you have a little power and you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. And most likely the implication is that this is a small church. It's a small group of people. They don't have much power because obviously communally power is always associated with numbers and social status, especially in the ancient world, numbers and social status. And so it's assumed that they just were a small group of people, probably from the lower classes. They had no power, but guess what? You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. And then, of course, the second behold we've discussed before, behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not. I'll make them to come and bow down at your feet. And then the third behold is I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and make them to know that I have loved you. Uh, and this is actually really interesting, really significant here, because there's a number of Old Testament texts and even early Jewish writings. So just the listeners might, might be aware that we call the period between the Old Testament ending, you know, maybe Ezra, which usually is around 400 or so BC, even if the, you know, maybe Daniel might've been written later, but nonetheless, we call the end of the Old Testament era from Ezra, like 400 BC to the time of the New Testament, the second temple period. And the reason why is because the first temple was built by Solomon, of course, back in the 900s or so BC. That temple was destroyed in 586 BC and then rebuilt the sec as a second temple now in 516 BC. And that second temple also becomes known as Herod's temple because about 20 or, or well, 20 years before Jesus was born, they started elaborating and adorning Herod's temple. And of course, they continued building on that temple until about 63 AD, about five years, seven years before it was destroyed uh, in the year 70. So that's, this, that's the second temple period. So there's a group of Jewish writings from that period also that are not, not part of our Old Testament or part of the Christian Bible. But throughout the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, and then some of these extra biblical writings or second temple writings, first Enoch and the Sibylline oracles and things like that, all describe that in the last days, the Gentiles, the nations who have opposed the Jewish people, that they were the oppressors, whether it's the Egyptians and then the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, that those nations who have oppressed the people will fall down in submission before Israel and before Israel's God. I'm going to make those who, who have, um, are your oppressors. Actually, let's look at the, uh, one of the verses here. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 14, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14. And John's certainly quoting Isaiah 60 or has it in mind here in this particular text. Do you want to read it? Do you have it, Vinny? Yeah, sure. Okay. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come uh, bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, there's no question that John has that verse in mind. If you, if you listen carefully, John says, I'm going to cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, I'm going to make them come and bow down at your feet and to make them to know that I have loved you. And then he goes on a few verses later and says, and I'm going to make you a pillar in a temple of my God, and you won't go out from it any longer. And I'm going to write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So you can see that John's clearly working with Isaiah 60 verse 14. 
And he's flipped it. Instead of the nations who've opposed the Jewish people coming down, bowing before Israel, Israel is coming and bowing down before the body of Christ in the church in Philadelphia. And again, got to be careful with, with our terminology because the church in Philadelphia was Christians, which were Jews and Gentiles. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the nations were going to bow down before Israel. And now Israel or the synagogue is going to bow down before the people of God. Uh, and I think this is a clear um, understanding of how John reads the Old Testament in light of Jesus, how the New Testament does it throughout the New Testament in light of Jesus and the fulfillment. It's not replacement. We'll get into that another day, another day, another, another time. The church has not replaced. And a previous day. And you could refer back to our conversation about a year ago with Daryl Bach and Gary Birch. Yeah. Or, or even Michael Brown. And we have Michael Brown. Uh, and Michael Brown as well. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah mm -hmm. That's right. So uh, Gary Birch and Daryl Bach were part of the Roman series. Uh, yes. And Michael Brown was part of the, of our recent series. Uh, not, uh, yeah. and I'll put and, the links in the show notes. Yeah. And speaking to Michael Brown, uh, when we had him on, we uh, addressed the issue of anti-Semitism. And so this is one of those passages where that topic is going to come up where it mm -hmm. talks about, uh, you know, behold, I will, in verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue mm -hmm. of Satan who say that they are Jews, but are not a lie. Uh, and so we definitely address that. And uh, that's something we always want to come back to where it's like, no, uh, Jesus, John, Paul, none of these people are anti-Semitic. <laughs> No, not at all. In fact, Jesus, John, Paul are as anti-Semitic as Isaiah was, mm -hmm. right? And the point of that actually is, is that they're criticizing their own people. Yes. And self-critique is not racist, right? And um, what they're doing is they're saying, hey, guys, we need to get our act together. So they're not being racial or uh, anti-Semitic in any way. They're simply critiquing uh, their own. And that, that's all that we're doing. Yeah. The, the critique is not on behalf of their jewishness that would be anti-semitic right whereas the critique is because of what's happening or the lack of what's happening there, there it's a theological yeah. critique the, and yeah, an ethical the critique, critique is that yeah. you're not living up to the covenant of which god gave to all our people yes. so it's it's mm -hmm. kind of ethnically there because the old testament covenant was ethnically related right but it's not critiquing you because your ethnicity it's because yeah. you failed to fulfill your role as the covenant people of god yes yeah. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would say. It's not you're a brood of vipers because you're Jewish. No, you're a brood of vipers because you're sons of the serpent, because you're doing what the devil did. Yeah. And in the same way, if you think about it, it's no more anti-Semitic than the Old Testament is anti-Gentile. You know, yeah, in, right. in the Old Testament story, sure. uh, Israel is the son of God. Israel has been chosen and Pharaoh has not been. You know, uh, Isaac was uh, chosen, Ishmael was not. I mean, in a sense, you could look at that and say... Um, you know, would we claim that that's anti-Gentile? No, this is a theological claim uh, that's definitely tied to ethnicity, but not be on the basis of ethnicity. Right. And realize that in both cases, like the illustration that you gave about the Old Testament favoring the Jewish people over the nations and the fact that the New Testament critiques the Jewish people. In mm -hmm. both cases, they're going to be subject to abuse. Yes. And, and, the, and the Christian church, as we discussed in great detail with Michael Brown, the Christian church has had a large amount of abuse. And it goes back to the second century. This mm -hmm. It's a book called the Epistle of Barnabas, obviously John Chrysostom and others, the Golden Mouth, these great preachers. They were very anti-Semitic, um, but that's deviating from the text. So uh, John then says that because they have been faithful, and this is uh, verse 10, because you have kept the words of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Uh, sometimes this is seen as a, a rapture passage, right? Yeah. 
this might be your best rapture passage, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. of, of them all. I mean, if you're going to argue for the rapture, I was doing a, a class for some other, another group uh, the other day, and they had finished the study of the book of Revelation. They're like, okay, chapter four, verse one, this is the rapture, right? I'm like, I don't know how you can get a rapture at chapter four, verse one. John's taken mm-hmm. to heaven. How, do, how in the world do you get the church getting raptured? You just have to read that in. Yeah, We've discussed before, you and I have, you know, Matthew 25, two will be in the mm-hmm. field and one will be yep, taken yep. home. It's like, that's not you want you want to be left behind you want to be left behind you don't want to be uh, taken the ones that are taken are, the, are, are taken in judgment mm-hmm. right it's as it was in the days of noah yeah. and and noah was left behind you know and the first thessalonians passage of course mm-hmm. it, it looks good like a rapture you know um the dead in christ will rise first yeah. and, you know and we'll be caught up and meet him in the air but the reality is describing the coming of a king and mm-hmm. people going out to escort the king back into the city not escort not going out to go up into heaven for seven years yeah uh, but this one kind of hey look I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. Right? The first thing to realize is this, the phrase that's coming up on those who dwell upon the earth, th- those who dwell upon the earth always in the book of Revelation means un- the unbelievers, the-, the people that are not followers of the lamb. So the idea of a worldwide tribulation of suffering, of a chaotic time that would occur right before God's final victory was widespread in early Judaism. And again, going back to second temple literature, the Testament of Moses, the book of Jubilees, second Baruch. But it's also in the book of Daniel as well. The idea of this end times, time of catastrophe, time of tribulation, time of suffering. It's also found in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. Obviously, Matthew 24, Mark 13, the eschatological discourse, Luke 21. Paul refers to it in 2 Thessalonians, obviously, as as well. uh, Chapter 2. So what you have, however, is the people of God are always promised that you're going to be able to endure it. I'm going to protect you so that you might endure it. There's never a conception in this second temple literature, the Jewish literature or Old Testament or New Testament literature, that we're going to be exempt from it. And that's kind of the idea of the rapture. So, well, what do you do with this passage? I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing seems to imply I'm I'm taking you out of it. Well, the only parallel linguistically is in John 17, verse 15. Mm, And let me explain what I mean. John 17, verse 15, when you get a chance, if you want to read it when you're ready. Yeah. So it's, uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil world. Uh, These are the only two places in the entire New Testament, which refers to, to keep them. I'm going to keep you from, and the phrase keep and from are identical in this passage and in uh, John 17 only. So uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, John 17, verse 15. But in John 17, 15, it's really clear. It's not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm mean, going to explicitly, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And the implication is to help them endure in the midst of the evil one. Don't take them out of the way, out of the world, because I need them. And in fact, you know, we've discussed this before, and I won't beat a dead horse here, but one of the big problems with the whole idea of the rapture is that the church, the people of God, as I like to, as I prefer to say it, are the ones who are called by God to be the agents of the kingdom. We're the one who's, we are the ones who make Christ known. And so the, you know, the idea of that, of taking the church out of the way, is like, you're taking the hand of God out of the way. We're the, we're the agent of God. And that just makes no, no sense at all. Now, obviously they say, oh, well, there's all these people that convert because of the rapture happens. Like, the reality, of course, is that you, you can't find the rapture anywhere in the New Testament. There's no place that you're going to advocate for it. We just addressed the Matthew 25 uh, mm-hmm. and the First Thessalonians 4 passages a little bit here. And, I, and we've done it on previous podcasts also as well. So I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what Revelation is describing then is coming trials and coming mm-hmm. tribulation. And obviously in my book, Understanding the, the New Testament in the End Times, I have a, section, a chapter on the tribulation. 
And I go through the word tribulation, every occurrence in the, in the New Testament for it. And the reality is the people of God are the ones who are undergoing tribulation. As Paul says in Acts 14, 22, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. So what Revelation describes then is we're going to get into in, the, in a few episodes or more, the seals, trumpets, and bowls. And the people of God are going to be protected so that they can endure it. You have the 144,000 who are sealed so that they can endure. The two witnesses are measured, which is a way of referring to divine protection. The woman's taken in the wilderness where she's pro provided for by God. But in each of those instances, being sealed or measured or taken to a wilderness does not mean that they're exempt from suffering. In fact, the dragon goes into the wilderness in Revelation 12 and goes after the woman. It says he pursued, Revelation 12, verse 13, he pursued or persecutes, you can translate the same word either way. He pursues or persecutes the woman. So in verses, I think it's verse six of chapter 12, the woman's taken in the wilderness where she, she's pre prepared for by God. Yet in verse 13, the dragon goes out to the wilderness after her. So mm -hmm. implication of that, and obviously the two witnesses are measured, which is divine protection, and then they're killed. And so the idea is that God protects us so that we can endure, not so that we can escape. Hey everyone, we want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind the scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah. So people are not snatched out uh, of the world. We're not raptured out. But what we are told in 3.11, the exhortation toward the church in Philadelphia is, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And that brings up a lot of interesting discussions. First off, it's an athletic metaphor. So the, the word mm -hmm. crown actually is a victor's wreath. It's, it's, a, it's a wreath. And it was given for the victor at athletic competitions. And basically, John's saying, finish well. Now, people read this and say, oh, therefore, you can lose your salvation because your crown can be mm -hmm. taken away. If you don't overcome, you, you're, you're going to lose your salvation. And the implication of that, what I like to say is this, is I think the text gives us tension, right? You know, we have this theological debates between Reformed theology and Wesleyan theology or Arminian theology. One stresses, you know, that you need to do good works and maintain in there. One stresses eternal security. I think they're both right. And I don't know how they're both right. And I think there's tension there. I think our salvation is secure in Christ. No one can snatch them out of, out of my hand. And yet at the same time, the book of Revelation is emphatic. The one who overcomes, mm -hmm. I will grant to eat from the tree of life. The one who overcomes, right? The one who perseveres, well, Matthew 24, verse 13 says, mm -hmm. Matthew 24, 13 says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The, the clear implication is the one who doesn't persevere won't be. Yeah. But I don't think we're supposed to stop here and worry about losing salvation. I think we're supposed to sit here and say, my job is to give worship and allegiance to Christ alone to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and to call upon the Holy Spirit, not by my, nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. I think that's what we're supposed to do. And I don't think we're just, if we sit here worrying about losing our salvation, then the focus is upon me and not Christ. Yeah. But if well, we focus on, one second, if, if we focus yeah, yeah, on being yeah. assured, assured of our salvation, then it might uh, bring about complacency. 
Yeah. Well, and, and and that's the the point I was going to make just to bring it down to a real practical level and even critiquing Christianese language. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the term I was most familiar with growing up is the idea of once saved, always saved. Right. 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 Yeah. And, and that's where I talk about complacency. You talk about, I think the ultimate, um, I, I think I understand what people are going for when they've mm-hmm. developed that phrase, but it really is a fire insurance type thing it where it's like I, it certainly I, is used that way a lot right yeah because yeah. i said the prayer like this is a great religion i said the prayer and now i could live however the heck i want and i'm good right um yep. because i know that even if i trash the car i have insurance i don't even got to pay a deductible like we're good um and and this is where i would say like you'd mentioned the, the difference between like a reformed or a wesleyan idea like as someone who is in the reformed tradition i would say i think a much better understanding in like in my context we never use the con we never use the phrase once say always say because right, i just right. think there's there's so much attachment i think it's actually a harmful phrase in that way you get the mom who her kids aren't at all involved in the faith and uh, you ask her about that and she's heartbroken. She wants her kids to be Christians exactly. and they're adults, right. but she's like, but you know what? I know they're saved because they, at VBS, when they were six, they said the prayer once saved, always saved. And it's like, that's a false assurance that you have mom. I, I'm not, the, I'm not the judge. Yeah. Right? I, I, I don't yeah, yeah. judge that, but we don't want to sit on that. So I, I would say in the reform tradition, what, what we would normally appeal to is we would use the language of there's going to be a perseverance of the saints Yes, exactly. uh, and God will persevere his people. And with that, I would also say as part of sanctification is I have a role in terms of becoming more holy. I didn't do any of the saving, but I'm involved in this. And so what are the good works that have been put forward for me that I will walk in? And if I'm not bearing fruit, well, then I'm, am I actually saved? You know, that is something right. that I would want to look at. But I, I think the phrase just once saved, always saved. It's just, it's it's so damaging on so many levels. I think there's a good heart behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to, to give charity, but it's just not, help, it's not a helpful term. It's not at all. And now look, looking at this pastorally, right? Yeah. Cause that's if what we're talking some, about right now. Yeah. 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 If you have someone that is grieving over the loss of a child or a loss of yes. a parent or a loss of a husband or a loss of a friend or whatever, yep. I don't find there anything wrong at all with, it is not a, a funeral is not the place to say, well, I didn't see the fruit in their life, so they're yes, probably in hell. Yep. I mean, it's yep. just not. It's, it's not the correct. time. Right now is the time for comfort. We don't know where they are. That's, correct. The, that's the ultimate reality. We don't. Yep. I mean, there are some people that are so righteous and holy. It's like, hey, guys, we're, we're really confident on this one. Yeah, but we could affirm people, what we could affirm, and yeah, we don't yeah, affirm and, what we cannot affirm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so allowing them to find comfort in, well, they're in a better place. Yes. Okay, that's fine. But at the same time, so the, the funeral on Friday or Saturday, and then the sermon on Sunday is the good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad yep. fruit. And the yep. good and the one who overcomes will and perseveres to the end will be saved. I mean, we, we need to exhort the people of God to obedience yep. and the Christ likeness. Now, yep. another part of pastoral counseling would be the one who when I when I grew up in the Baptist church, we used to say, Oh, he's backslidden. And that was just our yeah, excuse yeah. for yep. for falling away for six months or two years or mm-hmm, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Well, the person has come back. And I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And uh, I lost my salvation and there's nothing I can do about it. There's a couple things I would say to them or or the person that maybe temporarily is just, they're just down in the dumps and they just haven't been faithful Mm -hmm. lately to that person or to a lot of of those people that I would say, you know what? Our salvation is secure in Christ. Mm -hmm. Now I do think that, and I'm not sure what you would say on this and we don't have to get into it either. 
that justification is actually a process too. This idea of justification is a one-time deal. Sanctification is a process. I think they're both, I think it's all a process. I don't think we should divide justification and sanctification up that distinctly as Protestant theology has done. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, as Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's just sanctification. I think that is justification um, also. But nonetheless, um, I would encourage that person who's struggling right now, who's concerned about does Christ still love me and, and I'm, you know, whatever. But the person who who says that first person who says, well, I'm not worthy or whatever it might be. And some people like don't come to faith because they're not worthy. They've lived too horrible of life. My response to them is your view of God's too low or your view of self is too high. Mm-hmm. Either you think yourself so bad that God, even God can't redeem you, or you think, your view of self is so bad that even God can't redeem you because God's not good enough to redeem Mm -hmm, a person like mm -hmm. you. So either way, we've got a bad view of God. And I think they're relying on who God is, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No one's worthy. And I think all all those play in. But the other thing that I would add, if we preach the gospel of just confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved and we're good to go. It gives the pastor or the teacher in this in the church on sunday or bible studies or podcast no leverage to exhort to righteousness to godliness Mm -hmm. because it's optional the reality is you did what was necessary you're good to go and everything else is bonus and it's like it it clearly is not bonus it's to follow jesus and to confess jesus means to take up your cross and follow Mm -hmm. him and that is a radical commitment so yeah, yeah and it just there. no. It, I mean, like I, I would hold to a more of a traditional understanding of justification, so we would okay, differ fine. on that. That's, but, okay, yeah. but even at, at the end of the day, because I've had this conversation with people, especially the person who has been in and out of the church, they've had seasons, and I think one of the strong points in a, in a reformed theological perspective is we really parse out things and we, mm-hmm. we really ask questions. We, you know, we we're a lot of why people. Why is this? What does this mean? Right? But then sometimes when you know that those questions are there to be asked, you get hung up in the process. We get hung up in things like big terms, like order salutis, ordo salutis, right? The order of salvation, which ones happens first. And and then we get so hung up on these things that we're actually not paying attention to what actually the point of it is. And this is where as someone who's like, I've studied this stuff. I think it's important. I've, I've taught it, but when I've had those conversations with the person over coffee or whatever, they're doubting they've they're in a whatever place. And they're, they're in that spot where they're like, am I a Christian still? Or did I lose my salvation or whatever? And it's like, there's just some things you you can't know all the time. There are, there are people who they, they could say, you know, Hey, I just actually was never a Christian until mm-hmm. this point. Right. And, and they, they have their own testimonies to bear. But sometimes when the question is so murky, when the person doesn't know where it's at, it's like, honestly, you, answering the question isn't necessarily going to help you. Right. Uh, here, here's yeah, the, yeah. It, it actually I'll, I'll quote from, uh, we've, we've had Dave Shields on when we were in their uh, study on the book of acts, great missionary, like someone who you and I just have so much respect right. for as just a, in ministry. And just as a person, we know him really well. And yeah, I remember a fantasy uh, football player though. That, I, yeah, and especially that season starting up right now. So yeah, we yeah. won't talk about that. Right. Uh, although he doesn't have Tom Brady this year, but, um, I remember Dave Gill giving like just in, in his own pastoral encouragement way, once we were doing ministry, And he's like, man, you could walk away from Jesus for as long as you want. But here's the thing. All you have to do is turn around and he's right there. Hmm. You don't have to continue walking back to that starting point that you were at. Uh, And and that's, it it was just so simple and it removed the theological jargon of it. And that was just beautiful. It's like, that's what you need to rest in. If you're you're struggling with or you're at or whatever, 
you don't need to do all, you don't need to go to seminary or figure all this stuff out, turn around and he's right there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just thought that was a beautiful uh, word image to work through some of that theological jargon. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So question to going back to the taking your crown, you're, you're saying that this is a finishing the race thing. This is imagery. I, I didn't do a word study on this one. So my question would be, is would the crown in the Greek be the same word for that type of athletic crown? I'm mm-hmm. thinking like Athens or that. Stephanos, uh, yeah. Because, okay. Yeah. Cause, cause I'm, I'm looking back at like revelation one, you know, the people who are being written, written to, they have been made a kingdom uh, and mm-hmm. priests. Uh, so I'm thinking like, okay, well, would they have a crown as people who sit on the the throne with their, uh, you know, with their father, uh, or is this a different type of thing that's being addressed? Here? It's just a different word. It's just a different word. So bo- there are okay. b- both words you'll find in the new Testament, one for a crown, like for a King, but then okay. most often you have this metaphor of the, the wreath, the, the, the laurel wreath that's given to the victor. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to verse 14. So this is going to be the seventh church in Laodicea. Mm-hmm. And we could say to use common nomenclature, these guys suck. <laughs> like this is not a good church, right? <laughs> this is, this church is problematic. Yes. Yeah. You want to read it? They're the Corinthians of, uh, of revelation. You could say. I think they're worse. You know <laughs> yeah. I mean? oh, yeah. I, I think this church is in worse shape than the church in Corinth. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to read Let's go to verses chapter yeah. three. Uh, let's read verses 15 through 20, 15 to 20. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth for you. Say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, into him and eat with him and he with me. Yeah. What's interesting is, they say I am rich and have prospered and I have need of nothing. Yet they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The worst part of this church is that they don't realize that there are problems. Mm. They think, look, I have need of nothing. I'm, I'm prosperous. I'm rich. I'm, I'm good. And Jesus' answer is, oh, you're poor, blind, and naked. You're wretched and pitiful. So, and I think that's a serious problem. When you're trying to, to show people the problem and they don't realize that, that there is one. Mm. A great scholar that's written a lot on the seven messages, and I think we referred to him previously, his name is Wema. He said, the church in Laodicea was vain, overly confident of their superiority to other churches and of their self-sufficiency. Sadly, they were blind to their true spiritual condition. This is one of the worst conditions of all, is when you think you're good, and you're not because when someone comes up because when you think you're good you have all these reasons why you're good i don't know you've, mm-hmm. you've justified I don't know, you don't just think you're good you're like i have this evidence and this evidence and this evidence and this evidence to prove that i'm good mm-hmm. and you also have reasons why when people say you're not good why they're wrong and so it's really hard for that prophetic voice to come in and obviously jesus experienced this with the pharisees and the religious leaders he comes in as a prophetic voice but isaiah did all the prophets do and so you imagine it'd be interesting to know what happened to the church and Laodicea when John uh, read this letter, letter to them? So now what's also interesting is the church in Sardis. So La- Laodicea and Sardis are the two letters that have no positives. Mm-hmm. But at least the church in Sardis had a, 
remember chapter three, verse four, it says, you have a few people who have not sold their garments. But this one, there's no one positive that we know of. Obviously, there might have been some exceptions, but generally speaking, John's like, no, no good here. Nothing good. Yeah. This seems to be the one church where historical context, cultural context, yeah, geography yeah. Uh, really helps to understand yeah. the situation, especially when it's referring to uh, like things like water and that sort of thing, other things as well. But uh, I don't know, how, yeah. how do you feel like the, the background is going to help us understand this uh, yeah. section? It's actually important for all of them, but especially this one, you know, we talked a lot actually more than we probably should have, but about Sardis and how it was mm-hmm. uncomfortable up on the top of the sail and all that good stuff there. And obviously Pergamum was the, the temple to Zeus and all that good mm-hmm. stuff there. So uh, the city of Laodicea was first off very famous for its banking institutions. And obviously that meant they were very, very wealthy. And Jesus says that the church, however, is poor. And he advises them to buy gold refined by fire in order that you may become rich. Uh, Laodicea was also well-known, had a well-known textile industry, which manufactured widely distributed clothing. And so ironically to them, Jesus says, you're naked and you should buy from me white garments in order that you may clothe yourself. And then thirdly, Laodicea was well-known, had a well-known medical school that had produced an eye salve that was known to reverse some of the effects of blindness. Hmm. So the church, despite their medical abilities, was actually blind. So I advise you, Jesus says, to buy from me eye salve, to anoint your eyes in order that you may see. So yeah, really understanding that their banking, their textile, and their medical background really helps understand why Jesus is saying, you know, you're poor. You should buy from me gold refined by fire. And oh, guess what? You're actually naked. You should buy from me white garments. Oh, guess what? You're actually blind. You should buy from me an eye self to anoint your eyes that you may see. It's amazing because the way you're describing Laodicea, it almost sounds like New York City, where you have the, you know finance and mm-hmm. fashion and even medical, uh, you know, famous hospitals and medical schools. It's like wow, that just it, it makes me think of New York. We hope you're enjoying the podcast, and we want to remind you that everything we do at Determined Truth, the podcast, Rob's blog, and our YouTube channel, is available on the Determined Truth app. Directions on how to download the app is available in the show notes and on the DeterminedTruth.com website. Just click on the app tab. So in verse 15 and 16, it says, you know, I know your works, you're neither hot, you're cold, and I, you know, I wish that you were either hot or cold uh, because you're lukewarm, you know, and it's funny, this becomes like a very abused sermon. We've talked with Mark Wilson, who, I mean, he's definitely a foremost scholar on the seven churches in Revelation two and three. He suggested that it was public baths that the water is referring to. Uh, You don't agree though, right? No, I don't. So, and I respect Mark obviously. So, So Mark was talking about, you know, you had the cold baths, that obviously are refreshing and, and there. And then you have the hot, hot baths. And in the middle, you have the, the tepid baths, the lukewarm. It does nothing at all. No medicinal benefit, no relaxing benefits, no healing benefits at all. And it makes sense. The problem I have with that, with that understanding, of course, is the fact that it says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. So it says, you know, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So you wouldn't spit out of, out of your mouth bath water because you, you're not drinking it. It, mm-hmm. it seems to suggest that it's something that you're drinking and it's, it's drinking water. All right. So why even bother with a Mark Wilson, a foremost scholar in the world? We had to zoom him in from Turkey. And if we're just going to discard everything he says, you're going to correct him afterwards. You know, we we just we just, we have the guests on because it's, we're just kind of trying to be kind to them, you know, just giving them. Platform them. Yeah. You know, I, I feel bad for them. Like, OK, go ahead and come on. Yeah. And then I know you're I'll published just, by Zondervan, but it, yeah, you know, but, I, I, yeah, whatever. You're, you're, and I don't want to say you're wrong with them then, but. You know, that's fine. It's, it's we can just, say it after in a very passive aggressive way. It's, it's compassion. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, which is funny too, because Mark was like seriously one of the sweetest guys I've ever met in my yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. 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 So 
Are you saying I'm not? Uh, on the Mount Rushmore of sweetness, uh, you are definitely a visitor at that park. <laughs> Just I'm a visitor. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah, let yeah. me into the park. Yeah, you could pay paid attendance. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so either way, yes, whatever. You yes, you, you made it in. Uh, you had to pay to park too. So either way, it's not that what's not being said is that Jesus just wishes you would make a decision, either be on fire for him yeah, right. or just outright reject him. Right. Don't, don't be lukewarm. Don't pretend like you're there. Like that's not what, as many youth pastors probably preach the sermon. And that's, that's not what's, what's being said. Cause exactly. As soon as you say that, I remember a youth meeting where that's exactly what was taught mm. that God wants you either hot form or cold against him. He doesn't want you lukewarm sitting on the fence. It's like, <laughs> what? He either wants you to be like Hitler, you know, or like <laughs> St. You know, Mary It's like, no, I yeah. think, uh, uh, I think uh, he'd rather you not being Hitler, you know, right? Yeah. So, no, again, if it's cold water, if it's referring to water that's being drunk, then cold water, of course, is good for drinking. And warm water or hot water is warm for healing, hot water baths. Lukewarm water is neither. And if it was something with the pipes being, the water being piped in, and that's that's the controversial part there, that the water that comes into the city of, La of Laodicea had all kinds of alloys, and it was a problem. And not only was it lukewarm, but it was it was disgusting because it was full of alloys and metals. That makes sense why he's going to spit you out of his mouth. But it's not talking about being on fire for Jesus or cold against Jesus, but just don't be lukewarm. No, I'd rather you be like a nice person and not a murderer. Um, if you're not going to know Jesus, one of those is better than the other. Which you might have noise, you might have coined our next slogan for determined truth. De okay, determined yeah. truth. Don't be like Hitler. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I, I, or, or or we could just say slash Al Davis. Slash Bill Belichick. Let, let's oh, keep no, no, no. I'll, I'll delete that. Okay. At I'll, least Al I'll Davis has never caught cheating. He did dress in times. white clothes all the time. He never got caught cheating. Yeah, yeah okay. never caught. And he was robed in, in white. So he, he was hey, robed in this. white all the time. And Satan masquerades <laughs> an angel of white. He was always wearing white. Yeah, that's right. So this yeah. is Al Davis is part of the parody of Revelation. And like, like I've said to you before, by the way, at least my favorite team's logo doesn't belong on a liquor bottle. That, I mean, that's the bottom line. I mean, the it, yours logo, is just belongs in yeah, the liquor bottle yours is part of christian nationalism so it's, so, it's, totally, yes. it's the minute it's the minutemen right they're, they're <laughs> yes. marching off to war exactly let's bring in that manifest destiny baby okay well so, my favorite my by the way my favorite sports team is the man united red devils and and i would also say as part of my former music career i taught a drum and bugle core called the blue devils so oh, uh <laughs> well and by the way the man united one of their theme songs is uh, man united will never die will never die Man United will never Interesting. die. Interesting. Wow. Pretty blasphemous. Yeah, my God. That's actually the ringtone on my phone. If you were to call me right now, that would that's that's the it's, I'm totally serious. That's the yeah. ringtone. This is why I don't call you. Yeah, that's right. I don't want to don't want to cause brothers to stumble. Um, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we know it hot and cold, these are actually good things. Cold is as equally good as hot in, in terms of this water. Yeah, yeah, it provides value. Exactly. Yeah, providing value. Yeah. What would the works be that are lukewarm? The things that are actually bad then? Well, it's uncertain ultimately, but we know that they were arrogant. We are wealthy and have need of nothing. And you don't know that wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Right, so their wealth had gotten to them and they probably used that to justify their lack of diligence in being faithful to the gospel and to the kingdom. And of course, that, that's a problem. And by the way, there, there's a lot of very wealthy people in Laodicea. Which is very interesting. There was a guy in Laodicea. His name was Vinnie Heron. Oh, mm. I'm not sure if his first name was Vinnie or not, but none of the ones. And 
and he was known for supporting uh, public baths. And upon his death, he left 2,000 talents, which is millions of dollars in currency, for the people in the city. Wow. Uh, uh, There's another man who was so wealthy, he financed the 900-foot-long stadium in the city. And of course, whenever they do this, they, they leave inscriptions, right? And of course, on the inscription, it says, out of his own resources, nice and arrogant. Uh, there's actually another man who provided covered walkways and piped oil into the baths. And there were inscriptions, I think, in four different places that said, by himself, by himself, by himself. You know, they financed mm. all this. There's also another family that was extremely wealthy that left massive amounts of money to the city of, of Laodicea. And both Mark Wilson and Dana Harris mentioned the fact that a major earthquake destroyed the city of Laodicea mm-hmm. in AD 60. And the city of Laodicea rebuilt the city and would not receive any funds from Rome. We don't want any obligation from Rome, but we can do this ourselves. In fact, Tacitus, a Roman historian Mm -hmm. uh, of that era said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of its own resources with no help from us. So that was a very, very, very wealthy city. So I suppose and suspect that the wealth of that city had blinded them. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on something, yeah. a 900 foot st- long stadium. So yeah. a football field is 300 feet long. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, and I've been in a number of, we've both been in, in a number of stadiums in our life, yeah. three football field long stadium. That's huge. Well, yeah, these are tracks, they're, they're tracks for horse races and for equestrian and things like that. I've been to Greece and I remember seeing some stadiums like this. Obviously there's one in Caesarea and Israel. I don't remember how long it is. It's definitely the one in Caesarea is definitely longer than a football field. Hmm. I don't know if it's, but it's a hippodrome, right? They race mm-hmm. the horses and you've seen the movie. Uh, Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur with a horse race and all that. Uh-huh, it's, uh-huh. it's like that. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So is, you mentioned Sardis earlier, which we had already talked about. Sardis and Laodicea. These are two of the cities that, cities that are like some of the wealthiest you know, th- these are definitely the two wealthiest amongst the seven, mm-hmm. um, but and they are the ones who have no positive features. And I think that speaks, I think it mm. speaks loudly. And I think we need to listen to this because the Western church and the American church is very, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. And I do think that our wealth has blinded us a little bit. What's interesting, I just don't think we take seriously that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And with money comes power. I, I had, mm-hmm. I won't get into the details. I had a grieving interchange this morning with a pastor from India who just was like, why is money not coming our way? I'm like, I don't have mm. any, you know, I'm sorry. It's the nature of my ministry. And he's like, well, Jesus helped. He said, Jesus helped the people and he, and he provided for their needs. And, and he was being a little bit belligerent about it. And I said, and Peter said to the, to the poor beggar, silver and gold, have I none, but what mm-hmm. I do have, I give to you. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm like, what I do have is I can teach for you. And if you have a Bible college with Bible students, I'll help teach them and help train them, help equip them. If money comes and resources come and I can help, that's great, but, but I can't help. His response was, they won't believe me. They're going to think, here's what he was basically saying. They're going to think that if you're teaching for me, that you're giving me money. And when I don't give them money, uh... they won't believe it because Americans have money and therefore this conduit must be coming and I must be receiving money. So wow. if I'm not receiving any money from you, then I can't give them any money. And if they're not getting any money, they won't believe them. You know? And I'm like, and I, I was like, Hey, listen, I, I understand what you're saying, but you need to have the integrity. And it's just a cultural thing. So I, I had to be careful yeah. preaching to him. The integrity to say, no money's coming, but this is the best, most valuable resource you can get. You're going to get a yeah. better education than you can in any, anywhere else. Come to our school. We're going to have professor Rob, you know, help teach us everything else. 
and and trust that the Lord's going to provide some resources some other way. So I, I'm I'm seeing this, and then I'm seeing the American church, and I'm seeing the wealth that we have, you know. And being a pastor, you know, eighty percent of the people give twenty percent of the offerings, and twenty percent of the people give eighty percent of the offerings, and twenty percent of the people do it, you know, do eighty percent of the work. Yeah, yeah. And I know people that work in the finance industry and the banking industry where they look at tax returns all you know all the time, whatever. And they they're emphatic at least and that is the more money people make, the less money they give. And yep. it's just, it's just trying. And I think that if that's Christians as well. And I think that's something that we need to stop and go, wait a second. Have we been blinded? Have we, have we justified our wealth because of our hard work or whatever? It might, and that's fine. I get it. But they're not poor because they're lazy. That's not the, that's not case. It's, there, there are a lot of other reasons that maybe we'll get into a later time, but has our wealth blinded us? Because mm-hmm. it certainly blinded the two churches that had wealth, Sardis and Philadelphia and uh, Sardis and Laodicea. And especially Laodicea. Yeah. In uh, verse 17, Jesus has a really strong reply. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's harsh. It it is. And note that the introduction to Jesus in chapter three, verse 14 of this letter, of this message was, he's the amen, the faithful and true witness. Mm. So if he says you're poor, blind, and naked, and then you really are. So yeah. So I, I noted earlier that Laodicea had a famous banking institutions, and yet despite their wealth, Jesus says the church is poor. But I also mentioned that Laodicea had well-known textile industries, and they were actually famous for a raven black wool. Now hmm. raven black is very difficult to obtain because it's so rare, and yet Jesus tells this church that you're naked. And you should buy for me white garments that you may clothe yourself. And as we mentioned, they had an eye salve from the medical school that reversed blindness, and yet they were actually blind. So their their wealth was not being used for kingdom purposes. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You just mentioned nakedness, blindness, fine clothes. A lot of this is like a Genesis language, right? Yeah, it, it really is. Notice that if you go to Genesis chapter two, um, I'll read verse twenty-five. Genesis two, verse twenty-five. The man, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But then you go to chapter three, the eye, verse seven says the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together, and made uh, loin coverings. And the Lord heard, then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, this verse eight, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Lord said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you uh, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Uh, what's interesting about that is that humanity was made to be one. You see, you're not ashamed when you're naked in the shower, but you are ashamed when someone walks in on you. Obviously, if it's it's your wife, maybe not. But but then again, remember the husband and wife are one. But if somebody else walks in on you, there's a measure of shame. And when when we are one and acting in unity, there's no shame. But all of a sudden, because Adam and Eve decided to act in, in accordance with their own will and their own source of wisdom, they became no longer one. And they became ashamed of and, and naked. And that's exactly the ind- indication that the church in Laodicea is now no longer acting in accordance with their divine calling as the, the image bearers of God. And of course, the fine clothes reminds of Joseph uh, and the mm-hmm. fine clothes that uh, his father made for him. And the, the coat of many colors, which obviously might be a little bit of a misnomer. But nonetheless, it was a garment that was given to the one that was supposed to be the heir of the family. And I think he's number child number eleven, right? So I was like, mm-hmm. he should not be wearing this these clothes. Yeah, that, that should be the uh, the play out music for today's episode. The uh, J- Joseph and the Emec- Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
Yeah, the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Come on, you don't know this stuff? No, you're not very cultured, are you? Is that on Sports Center? It's <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Is that, is that it? Exactly. Okay. I, 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 okay. Yeah, I do recognize that song. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what it is. Big theater guy here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's important that they are to buy this from me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The implication is that in Revelation, it's compromising. I think in the in the New Testament, it's compromising with the imperial world with the cult of Rome, with the local trade guilds, with mm-hmm. the local community for the sake of economic security. And like Jesus says in Matthew 6, as we've talked about a few times now, why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about food? Look at the birds of the air, look at the loads of the field. And it's from Jesus, it's trusting in him. And I think that goes back again to the American church. We don't have to worry about food or clothing because I've got a whole closet full. I've got a mm-hmm. whole refrigerator full and a pantry full. And I think, how do we grapple with this? And I think we need to grapple with this. So, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking about that. I could literally go the rest of my life and never buy a piece of clothing again. And I'd yeah. be completely fine. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm, I'll have enough. <laughs> yeah. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And it's amazing too. He's talking to Christians. Hey, yeah. Christians, repent. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. The first four churches that were unhealthy. So Ephesus, the Ephesian church was told that they need to repent or they're going to, he's going to remove their lampstand. The church in Pergamon was told that the one who has a sharp double-edged sword is going to come with a sword and fight against them. The church in Thyatira was told that he's going to take Jezebel and her followers in the Thyatiran church and throw them on a sickbed where they're going to suffer intensely and kill their children. The church in Sardis is told He's going to come against them like a thief. Yet in Laodicea, we don't ever get it. I mean, this seems to be the worst church. Mm-hmm. And yet it's told, they're just totally told repent. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, and then the, the tone changes here and you have Jesus saying, and what's become another very popular, yeah, yeah. it's been a meme and everything. Uh, Jesus says, behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to them and I will dine with them and they themselves with me, which is, this is oftentimes interpreted as an evangelistic phrase. We've talked about it a little bit before, but this is something that he is telling to the church. He's not in the church here. He's knocking at the door of the church. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's there's no message of what the impending judgment is going to be. There's only a call to repentance and that call to repentance is to the church. Mm-hmm. And again, I, someone asked me just the other night as I was teaching for them. So if I use in a sermon, Revelation 3.20, and tell everybody in the congregation that they need to repent and come before me because Jesus is standing at the door of their heart, is it okay or not? I'm like, well, it's, okay. it's not what the text is saying. The text is not using this as a call to repentance, but there's a truth there, right? Mm-hmm. That even for mm-hmm. the non-Christian person, Jesus is wanting to, for them to take him into his heart, into their heart. But that's just not what this text is saying. I, I'd use you know, Romans chapter 9. Uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. 10, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 10, 9, 10, uh, mm-hmm. 13. Yeah, that's, this is a reference to the church. Yeah. So what is the significance? Is there a, a symbolism or imagery of Jesus standing at the door? Yes, because what I think we've lost in our churches a little bit to some extent, if not to a large extent, Vinny, is the sense of community. The church is a place of community. So the church in Philadelphia was told by the, the synagogue of Satan, shut the door. And Jesus answered, don't worry about it. I have the keys of David and and I'll open the door. And when I open, no one shuts. When I shut, no one one can open. And now 
the church in Laodicea. I'm standing at the door and I'm, I want to come in because I want to have intimacy and community. And obviously it's a type of meal. I, I will come in and I will dine with you. And that dining is communion. Well, let's put it this way. In the New Jerusalem, it's sitting at the marriage supper of the Lamb and feasting or Isaiah 25, 24, 25. But for us in the present, it's what, that's what communion reminds us of. It's to have this communion, this fellowship with God's people. So there's, there's two possible imageries for standing at the door and knocking and, and dining with them. One actually is from the Old Testament in the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2. The voice is of my beloved. He's knocking on the door. Open to me, my darling. Now, in that passage, Christ is presenting himself as a loving husband who stands at the door of his bride. And obviously the bride would be the church in Laodicea, which fits the imagery of the book of Revelation. The New Testament parallel would be the parable of the doorkeepers in Luke 12, verses 35 and 36. And it says, quote, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. And the idea there, again, would probably be something along the lines that Christ is ready to come and have intimate fellowship with them. He's just waiting, wanting to share a meal with them. And I, I think it's something very significant that we've lost sight of. When we make Christianity about accepting Jesus into your heart, we lose the community part of what mm -hmm. we're being called into and what we're being called to be. Yeah. All right. So that kind of brings us through our second pass through the letters. Uh, next the time message. we're going to, yeah, seven, seven messages. All right. Yeah. Got to put a dollar in the swear jar. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> we're going to uh, then look at some phrases, like some specific phrases that we see in all the letters having ears and having ears to hear overcoming that's going to be our next pass right yeah each one of the messages ends with an exhortation to the one who has ears to hear that i'm here with the spirit says to the churches yeah. and then to the one who overcomes and of course that the order's flipped at the, the last four and they both end, they end with that so we'll, we'll cover that and of course the word overcome as i've argued before is perhaps the most significant word in the entire book so we'll spend some time on that and then we'll finish up the seven messages and then we'll be on to the apocalyptic vision of chapter four Hope you're enjoying this. Keep continue reading through. We're going to take another pass yeah. through chapters two and three. So just keep reading and absorbing the stuff and uh, we'll eventually get into chapter four, but let's still hang out with these seven churches. Rob, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. See everyone next time. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of determined truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.